0: I've had the privilege of being in and around banking for more than 50 years. Lots of changes during that time. We've gone from ledgers to laptops, typewriters to technology. One thing, however, remains the same. Banking is a people business. And I'll be talking with those people that make banking great here on Jack Rats with Modern Bankers. Welcome to Jack Rants with Modern Bankers, brought to you by RelPro Pro and Vertical IQ. Each week I feature top voices in financial services from bankers and consultants to best-selling authors and many more. The goal of this program is simple, to provide insights, success practices, and to bring new ideas to the table that you can use to maximize your results. My guest today is Jeff Marcico. Jeff is president of the Kafafian Group, one of the top consulting firms in financial services focused on performance measurement, strategic management, process improvement, and financial advisory. Jeff earned a BA from the University of Hawaii West and an MBA from Lebanon Valley College. A Navy veteran, Jeff's book, Squared Away, is a must-read for all community bankers. I've been privileged to have been a guest on his outstanding podcast, This Month in Banking, Jeff is the real deal, and he loves to rant, and he's going to do that today. It's Jeff Marcico on Jack Rants with Modern Bankers. Here we go. So I always like to start with, um, and you've got a lot of great stuff going on, Jeff. So I always like to start
1: with, tell me something good. Tell me something good. Well, I think the proposed FDIC special assessment to refill their insurance fund is going to be geared towards the very largest banks that have the highest proportion of uninsured deposits. So community banks dodge that extra expense uh, in their P&L. So I think there's something good, Jack. Well, th-
0: speaking of, of, of community banks, I saw, uh, I saw you at um, bank marketing school many years ago. That's where we met. And before you got up to speak, I kind of thought in my own mind, well, why is this guy talking? It's it's really not marketing, but it is marketing. Um, you've had a terrific, and and after I heard you, it's like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. So you started your company in 2001, and you've worked with about 400 financial institutions. Talk about the Kafafian group and what you guys do.
1: Yeah, so... The reason why you saw me at ABA Bank Marketing School, one of our lines of business is our performance measurement practice where we measure on an outsource basis the profitability of lines of business and products and we feed customer profitability systems uh, on an outsource basis. So we have an idea of how much uh, spread that a bank makes on a commercial real estate loan. Uh, So we have that that level of insight and that's why I was actually down uh, teaching at ABA Bank Marketing School. We also do strategic planning, so we get a chance to actually leverage some of the information we learn from performance measurement and uh, lean into the strategic planning process to to help banks refine their strategies uh, and and build an enduring future. We do process reviews where we go into a bank and look at how they get things done and make recommendations on how they can do them better with fewer resources, uh, maximize the use of technology, et cetera. We do some management advisory like some board advisory work where we might say, well you know why don't we uh, d- introduce strategy into board sessions so they're not so rote and technical and and uh, you know have a 400 page board package but other various things on the management advisory side and then we do financial advisory. we do do mA work uh, for community financial institutions. We're not like the big bulge bracket firms in that regard that were're going around pitching 20 deals hoping that one takes shape. We're pretty responsive to our clients in terms of financial advisory. So that's, that's what we've been doing for the past 22 years, Jack.
0: Yeah. And time goes by really
1: fast, doesn't it, Jeff? It's kind of interesting. It um, so it's, it's interesting to see me at a bank marketing school though, right? I, I don't it think is. that side of my brain that much,
0: but it's so important. And and now that I teach, uh, I'm a section leader at, at graduate school of banking, sales and marketing school. And we have a guy Mike Weir, who's phenomenal. And Mm -hmm. we start the school with the business of banking because marketing professionals need to understand how banks make money and what a margin is and Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. But you, you talked about a couple of things. I want to dive into your book in a second, but you talked about a couple of things that you do. And I'd love to pick at a couple of them. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: Number one is performance management and performance measurement. It staggers me still that um, banks are still measuring on a sales call basis, bank to business, numbers of calls made, numbers of loans made or deposits made. And so you've got calls made, sales made. Everything in between is a coachable moment. And I'm curious uh, in your performance measurement, are you seeing any banks that are measuring anything in sales differently or better than just
1: numbers of calls made and number of sales made? Yeah, so I'm not the expert on sales like like uh, you would be, uh, Jack, in that regard. But w- there's a bank that measures their performance of their branch managers by the amount of revenue growth in their branch. So the spread that they generate from their deposits, and you get a greater spread from a business checking account than you do from a certificate of deposit, et cetera, et cetera. And if you understand how that spread uh, becomes... You start to understand your priorities on who you should be calling. But I think if you measure the branch on continuous profit improvement rather than the sales practice of how many calls did you make, and maybe for people that are struggling and they need much more coaching, that that level of granularity is is something to work on. But you are denying, if you have a 40 branch network, you're denying the opportunity for a branch manager to innovate on how they generate sales based on the market that they are in and based on the personality that they have and the nature of the customer base that they have. Cause I think if for a branch that might be in a highly industrialized area, it's going to be a lot different than a branch that's in a uh, residential area. So you're denying them the chance to experiment, see what works You're also uh, denying branch managers from having a learning loop on what some of branch managers are doing that's working versus what others are doing that's not working because they're all doing the same thing if you're doing number of calls and, and the same thing. But if you hold them accountable for that continuous profit improvement in their branch, you allow that level of experimentation, that feedback loop, that continuous organizational learning to see what works and what doesn't work. And, and that's where I think that profitability could play a really positive role in moving banks forward and improving their profitability.
0: And that's where your company can really help because a lot of banks don't really understand what their profitability is and how to get to it. The second thing you mentioned is our uh, mergers and acquisitions. And I'm curious what you're seeing in community banking in terms of now and going forward with mergers. One of the things that is fascinating to me our credit unions and banks that are merging together what what's
1: what's the uh, merger landscape like out there jeff oh boy that you just threw a fire right on it there and and i'm sure some of our trade association friends would be interested in learning so credit unions have an advantage in doing a bank merger for for two reasons one they are liberating taxable income and turning it into non-taxable income so if they're buying a financial institution that earns say $5 million a year, and they pay $1 million in taxes, what they're now doing is they're turning that $5 million into post-tax income because there is no $1 million, uh, in taxes. So that really gets to the gore of the community bankers. And the second one is they don't have to take a haircut on what they pay over book value to their capital position, whereas a bank actually has to reduce their equity position, their tier one leverage ratio, by that intangible asset, credit unions do not. So they have two advantages. They could pay more in cash because they are getting more in earnings because of the lack of tax status. So that that really um, is is a problem and there's a lack of parity there. So if you're a bank that, that wants to sell your bank and you're compelled to entertain the highest price, most state Business corporations law don't require you to take the highest price, the boards of directors to take the highest price. But if there's a big delta, it's hard to justify why you took a lower price, just because it's a community bank that offered the lower price versus the credit union. So the credit union has generally a greater amount of pricing power because of the tax status and the lack of deduction of the intangible asset from the capital position. I don't think it's going to be a tremendous phenomenon if it starts to elevate in terms of significance. I think we peaked at maybe 16 credit unions buying banks in one year, which might have been less than 10% of all of the mergers that happened. But if it starts to creep upward in terms of number of, I think the trade associations will take a very aggressive position on that. We've already seen a couple state trade associations uh uh lobby to not get deals approved. Um I think in Colorado and another state, it was difficult for a credit union to do a bank. So uh, th- that's the credit union on bank landscape. But in terms of MA, it's a really difficult time to get deals done because of arcane accounting laws. You have the, the target, their whole balance sheet has to be marked to market. And you could imagine a bank that has 50% of residential mortgage loans with an average yield of 3.9% in a market where now residential mortgage loans are going off at six and a half to seven percent, that those loans that are on the books will be marked down pretty significantly. And it's it's a big pill to swallow for the buying financial institution. Plus the valuations, so many banks in the country are trading at below book value that it's just really difficult to do a tremendous amount of deals. Usually, the industry shrinks about 4% per year. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot less this year just because of the technical issues uh, involved and and the mark-to-market accounting that is required. Even when credit unions buy banks or credit unions merge and acquire each other, they still have to mark their balance sheets to market. And for the uh, acquirer, sometimes it's too big of a pill to swallow.
0: Interesting. Well, you you you've been a prolific speaker. You're a prolific writer, and that kind of culminated in 2021 when you wrote "Squared Away." And by the way, every banker should have this on their desk. They should be reading it. It's truly outstanding. I just want to pick at a couple of things that you talk about. In one of the chapters, I think it's chapter three. You talk about the board of directors, and I have a couple of questions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you the, the the title is. What makes an effective community bank board? So I'll ask
1: you, what makes a, an effective community bank board? I feel like I should take the lawyer's answer and say it depends. But, <laughs> but can you, you won't, Jeff. The, the, if you think about community bank boards, they're made up of mostly business people around the communities where the bank is. It used to be almost a stereotype that we'd have the mortician, we'd have the insurance agent, we'd have the local lawyer. Uh, that's probably changed a little bit right now. But I think what a community bank first has to recognize is the role of a board of directors. And in banking, the FDIC director's pocket handbook tells what the role of the directors is. It's it's the safety and soundness of the financial institution. And they do that by setting and adopting policy and then holding management accountable for uh, uh, operating within policy the second thing that they are are the keepers of the strategy. So they don't necessarily have to have to be the ones that are fully engaged in developing the strategy, but as the management team brings a strategy to the board for adoption for approval and adoption, the the board should be holding the management team accountable for the execution of the strategy. And then I think for a community financial institution the third part is just to be ambassadors in the community. It's it's a little bit different than a city a Citibank board. By the way, Citibank needed a, a bailout in two thousand and eight, and they had Robert Rubin, who was the former Secretary of Treasury, on their board. Signature Bank failed in New York City, and they had they had um, uh, Barney Frank on their board. So those boards of directors are different than the community financial institution, where the 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 board members have to be. Uh, Ambassadors for the financial institution in the community, which kind of greases the wheels for that marketing and sales effort. So, if you're trying to get a high-profile business in the next town over, it's I think it's totally appropriate for through maybe the CEO or a board secretary ask pull the board members. Does anybody know people in this business that could help me uh, take get a meeting at this at this business? It's a totally legitimate way to utilize uh, the board of directors. So I I think those are the things that boards should do. It is difficult because they're generally small business people and they're used to having their fingers on every little aspect of their own business. Mm -hmm. So they have difficulty sometimes elevating. They they sometimes dip into the management, especially as a bank grows. Uh, As a bank grows, you know, the management team gets more sophisticated, they get more built out. Uh, they really don't need the board to be talking about their billboard strategy uh on, on I-95. Yeah.
0: So, so- and, and I don't know if you share this opinion. Uh there are a lot of community bankers now that are retiring, veteran bankers who really understand the business. Mm-hmm. Our industry is so complex that I believe it would be of a huge benefit for community banks to have one banker or one somebody that mm-hmm. understands this industry on their board. And I don't know if you're seeing that as a trend or what you believe in there.
1: I do. And I think that's a a, a testament to the management team that's there because so one of the challenges sometimes is a community bank has what I would consider to be a grand poobah leader. They would just prefer not to be challenged, right? Uh, those boards don't want somebody with that level of experience on it. But for example, Bob Kavafian from our firm is now on a, a Miami-based financial institutions a board of directors. If the management team is comfortable in their own skin and use the board as sort of internal consultants that they could bounce ideas off of, etc. cetera, uh, it could be a tremendous resource for a financial institution. Plus it elevates the, the discussion uh, at board meetings because, you know, it's difficult for the person who runs a construction firm to get into all the levers that you could push to improve your efficiency ratio, or even if an efficiency ratio should be improved. So it's good to have those people on the board as sort of uh, a consultant for the management team uh, and also to elevate the, the tenor of the board. What they talk about should be things that actually matter to the safety and soundness of the bank and strategy execution.
0: And I want to get to strategy and execution because you you have such a, a window into what's going on. I want to talk about that. But before we leave the board, I want to ask you one other question. I know a bank who has on their agenda, the very first uh, thing on the agenda is referrals from the board. Uh, And uh, that has happened over time for this particular bank, Uh, but board members are providing referrals. Now, that's a little unusual. When I talk to bankers, they kind of go, wow, that's kind of cool, because our board doesn't do that. But there are banks who have another kind of board who are responsible for referring business and that's advisory boards. What are you seeing out there, Jeff, with, with advisory boards, what's working, what's not?
1: Yeah. So I think that one bank that used advisory boards as the relatively less experienced, I can't say younger, right? Or, well, we don't have an HR person on this call, right? (laughs) A a relatively younger uh, board of directors that was their bench for their older board of directors. They say, first and foremost, they use it as a development tool for the bench, you know, give those uh, advisory board members a little bit more prominence uh, and also give them the opportunity to learn about banking and what is working and what is not and for basically doubling down on community ambassadorship uh, in terms of bringing referrals to the bank. I do think that, there will be board members that are just not resident in the communities that will be strong board members. I had just mentioned my boss, he doesn't live in Miami, but he's on the board of a Miami-based bank. Uh, So he's not going to be very useful in terms of bringing referrals, but he's a very useful board member. So maybe having a horse race on who does the most referrals tends to end up being a negative uh, and tends to be a stick more than a carrot because then you're calling out people who don't bring referrals. Yep. So I do think you got to use it in a carrot wide thing that say, look, um, this board member has introduced us to seven new clients this year, which was a tremendous boost to our commercial lending production. And we would like uh, this person, him or her, to represent us at the state convention this year. Uh, and, and, you know, sort of do a reward like that, but do it in a positive way. Because like I said, a lot of boards... Boards are like a personality in a, it's a cult in its own self. And, and they boards need different elements of their cult. And if it requires an alcohol expert uh, who used to be a retired CFO of a bank that's three States over, then that person is should not be expected to bring referrals to the bank. Right. Uh, but the people that do, I think should have that positive recognition uh, but just not in a way that makes everybody else look like fools who don't do it. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into where we are. Uh, the last couple of months have been a bit challenging, and you are certainly on the on the forefront of knowledge around that. where 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 are things in the banking industry
1: now? Well, I think things are exciting in the banking industry, and the we have to harness the excitement and channel it beyond platitudes. In my opinion, I think a a smaller community bank has a much better chance of harnessing the data at their fingertips than a very large financial institution, just because they're smaller, that they can take on data governance projects, the data cleanup projects, and be able to execute it in a reasonable time because the very large financial institutions have disparate systems that came together via various mergers, uh, have difficulty doing data governance across a huge franchise. Uh, I I frequently say that I'm with a top 10 bank in the United States and they've never called me, not once. They've never called me. And I'm not saying that I'm like the perfect uh, candidate, but I'm saying that I think that a, a smaller financial institution, has a much better chance at winning the data wars than the very large ones, even though the very large ones have a full floor of programmers on their 16th floor at headquarters.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And, and when, when, the, uh, when the SVB and uh, Signature Bank uh, stuff came around, um, it was kind of nice to know that my bank reached out um, and, and talked about Bower ratings and talked about safety and security, and I know they did that for their, their top clients as well, and that, that allow those community banks now have the capability to move quickly and to be flexible. Yeah, community banks don't maybe necessarily have all the products and all the people and all the, all the rest of it, but they do have the capability to move, move quickly. Well, you, you talked about uh, the FDIC insurance a little bit before we started recording.
1: Uh, where are we with FDIC insurance? What's happening there? Yeah, so there's two things happening. One is the special assessment to refill the insurance fund, the uh, deposit insurance fund or DIF from the uh, SVB signature uh, failures. And I'm not sure if they're experiencing any loss experience from First Republic Bank uh, or not. And Silver Silvergate in La Jolla is liquidating in its own right. So I'm not sure if there will be any pressure on the fund there. But just signature and SVB Requires uh, a, a special assessment in order to refill it, and the current proposal put forth by the the um, FDIC, which is out there for comment right now, is that uh, they will have a 12.5 basis point uh, special annual assessment for two years for all banks with greater than five billion dollars of uninsured deposits. So. That, you know, I, we ran an analysis on behalf of the Massachusetts bankers, and that was three or four banks in their entire orbit. So it's a low percentage of banks focused on the very large uh, banks. So for community financial institutions, that was a win. So refilling the deposit insurance fund is issue number one. Secondarily, the FDIC is putting out feelers for deposit insurance reform because they don't want to be in the situation where the secretary of the treasury has to invoke the um systemic risk exception from the fidisha act of 1991 that's actually from a 1991 law of the the systemic risk exception whenever something material happens in the banking space as was svb and signature bank runs uh they were material so in order to try to quell these bank runs based, based on bad news, uh, made speedier, bank runs were made speedier by technology and they were amplified by by social media. Uh, in order to deal with this new world, maybe we should think about deposit insurance reform. One is keep things pretty much as is uh, to up to $250,000 per unique owner. So that means that if you and I had an account, Jack, and we had five thousand, five hundred thousand dollars in it, and that's all we had at the bank, we would be fully insured because it would be two fifty for you, it'd be two fifty for me. But then, if you had an account with your wife with another hundred in it, well, you're out. <laughs> but but your wife would uh, would would be able to enjoy uh, the insurance, but only fifty thousand of that. So there's some ownership nuances to it uh, that you could. Uh, actually have over 250000 of insurance, but keeping insurance as is is sort of proposal number one. Proposal number two is unlimited insurance, which means that no matter what you have in an FDIC-insured institution, um, um, that's, that, that's what would be insured. And number three was targeted insurance. Like, for example, if a company who had 20 employees had to fill their payroll account, right and the payroll account needed a million dollars uh that that transfer payment account would be fully covered even though 250 is the standard coverage so it takes that kind of risk off of businesses when they have to like fill a payroll account targeted uh insurance i don't know how to calculate the impact to the industry for proposal number three proposal number two you might safely assume that your deposit your deposit insurance assessment would go up by the percent of your uninsured deposits, right? But that's not how assessments work in terms of uh, what, what banks pay. They actually pay their average assets minus their average tangible equity times a floating basis points uh, based on their CAMELS ratings and their exams, So that's probably a boring way to describe exactly how it's done. But I would assume that everybody's deposit insurance will go up. But I think worse than the the extra cost to financial institutions will be now we've created a moral hazard problem being that the risk of what a bank takes is now being fully insured by the deposit insurance fund meaning that the people who take the risks and decide on the risks are not the people that will ultimately pay on the risks if the risks come to roost so that creates a moral hazard problem which means that examiners will start telling banks more about what they can and cannot do and and that will be a, i think it'll be a, a problem and we'll start to move more towards banking as utilities more than banking as innovators as funders of nascent businesses in our communities, um, and it then size will be the only thing that matters.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a shame. Uh, you know, I remember when I started banking in 1973, the FDIC insurance was twenty thousand dollars, and um, you know, life was a lot simpler then. Now, you know, certainly technology has helped, and and the banking industry, obviously, like every industry, has changed in some ways for the good and in some ways for the not so good. And one of the not so good things that happened in the last several months is what I'll call deposit leakage. Mm-hmm. Uh, deposits are have left. In fact, I re- read an article recently uh, that, that in the first quarter, I believe, deposits dropped in banking by about 16% overall.
1: Mm-hmm. However...
0: You just came out with a recent Forbes article Mm -hmm. and
1: you did an analysis and community banks are actually holding their own in terms of deposits, Jeff. They are. And that was not what was going on in the media. The media ran to this Fed H8 report and it was a sampling of banks saying what's happening with your deposits and they just peanut buttered that assumption over the entire banking thing. Uh, And I was wondering how those articles were asserting that small banks were losing deposits in the billions and it was the H8 report because the call report had not come out yet call reports don't have to be filed till 30 days after the end of the period so we wouldn't have seen the call reports till the end of April for the first quarter so I waited till the end of April to say anything about it and what I found out is every size bank cohort up to 25 billion in total assets which is a pretty large financial institution Jack uh gain deposits from the 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 first quarter of 2022 to the first quarter of 2023 the the bank and, and and then the loss in deposits came from banks that were above that and i think that banks were struggling let put the fear of the uninsured deposits aside which ha- which is what happened at svb and signature banks were struggling because they weren't keeping up with market rates on deposits so you know if you if you matter to your customers if you have strong relationships with your customers if your brand actually resonates with your customers they shouldn't dump you for 25 or 50 basis points on a deposit rate but if you're paying them 300 to 400 basis points less than the market rate for an alternative well now you're screwing them Jack. So so that is the pressure that community financial institutions were feeling. They thought that they were holding the lid on their cost of funding and then all of a sudden in the for- in the first quarter it went up like a hockey stick because they were struggling to keep money that they were paying materially under market rates on. It wasn't about the safety and soundness of the bank or the SVB or signature failures.
0: Yeah. It, it, you know, and, and so what does loyalty matter anymore? Um, we get, and I'm sure you get almost on a daily basis from banks around the country, banks I've never heard of, even though I've been in this industry for a long time. Um, you know, hey, we can, you, we'll pay you 5.03 or or through December, we'll pay you 5 point whatever it is. Yeah. Yet our community bank uh, that that we do business with uh, is very reluctant to raise the rates. And you wrote an article, and I don't remember if it was on LinkedIn or if it was on your blog or what have you. And you had a story about that. And I, I guess I'm, I want to pick at what you just said a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, what's the problem here? Why aren't banks starting to realize that, it, yeah, it might cost them a few bucks in the short term, but in the long run, they're going to keep their depositors. And, and that's really important
1: to them. Yeah, so if you think about the way things have gone this cycle and, and this tightening cycle, and I think also the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, I think it went the exact same way. When we when well when we dropped rates, well this is actually prior to two thousand and eight when rates were extremely low and then went up to five and a quarter percent on the Fed funds rate in two thousand and seven. Uh, it was the exact same thing. The banks betas, which is how much their cost of funds go up compared to hundred basis points of the fed funds rate going up were extraordinarily low at the beginning of a fed tightening cycle. And then when depositors woke up, it became extraordinarily high and went up like a hockey stick. It it did that uh, in the, the fed fund tightening cycle prior to the financial crisis. And it did, and it's doing it right now as we speak. And the reason why is, and, and I am going to have Amber Farley on our podcast, and I'm going to challenge Amber about what does brand get you? Because I don't like this marketing speak. If it doesn't work on a spreadsheet to me, Amber, I don't understand why I would invest <laughs> any money in branding, right? So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in our next podcast. But um, if if you're holding deposit prices down, And the difference between what a depositor can get in an alternative, the delta becomes bigger and bigger, right? Now, when a depositor wakes up, they're saying, wow, my bank is really paying me lower than the market rate that I could get on a money market account, on a treasury, or at Discover Bank, right? That has credit cards on the other side of their balance sheet. So why is my bank paying me so low? Well, my, the bank is paying me so low is because they're relying on me not noticing. And that is not a way to build trust with your depositors. For sure. So the bank would get two to three, maybe four quarters of superior cost of funds because they're keeping our sleepy customers ignorant, right? Then they're relying on that. And then when that customer wakes up and then they have to hockey stick their cost of funds up, so, yeah, they had two, three, maybe even four quarters of superior cost of funds. But what they've done is they've tarnished their image to their own customers because they relied on them not paying attention. And really, do what brands do you want to interact with that you have to pay hyper attention to or they're going to take advantage of?
0: Very true. Uh, and and so we, we are challenged as an industry and. The next challenge may be, and and you're the expert, I'm not here in this area, um, is commercial real estate. I read an article recently that talked about the fact that 700 banks are over the FDIC process for the capital limits on, on commercial real estate. I don't know how you're seeing this, Jeff, but I think this is the next canary in the coal mine.
1: It is. I think it's going to be very targeted. So I'm not a credit specialist, but if you think about where the struggle is, the struggle is in retail uh, space, right? So the malls, what do they call them? Zombie malls now, which I'm watching Fear the Walking Dead on on Hulu now. So, it's just, yeah, so we have zombie malls and there's a lender behind that mall, most likely, right? Uh, s- strip malls that now used to have very reliable anchor tenants in it and if they lost one tenant they would still be cash flow positive and still be look good on credit but if if it's a five unit strip mall and they lose three of them then it doesn't look so good so i think those will be challenging and then of course office space but primarily in in large cities jack The the pendulum is swinging. There are large corporations that are really going toe-to-toe with their own employees about coming into the office, including Amazon, J.P. Morgan. They're going toe-to-toe with their employees, but they are struggling to get people to come in the office. And there's a whole ecosystem around having full offices, you know, the Starbucks that are in town, uh, the local CVS or the local retailers. I think that the commercial real estate would be heavily focused on office space and retail space. Uh, and I think the community bank tends to manage those things well or not even be in those credits. I mean, the mall is a very sizable credit for a community bank. So even though they may be over in commercial real estate, they're, you know it's the tool and die shop of a local business person their warehouse. Uh, and that is in at less risk, in my opinion, than the retail strip mall.
0: For sure. Owner occupied is always good. If, if I'm a business owner, I'm going to work five part-time jobs if I have to, to keep this thing going and, and to pay my bills for sure. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, um, tw- well, as we wrap this up, got a, just a couple more questions for you. Um, you, 2024 is a ways away, mm-hmm. uh, but but you've got a pretty good crystal ball there, Jeff, and you talk to a lot of banks. What are you seeing for the rest of the year and into 2024 in terms of trends in our industry?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm actually, our firm is actually developing our, we constantly evolve our financial industry overview for our strategic planning practice. One of the things we're talking about is it's going to be a rough year for 2023, and that banks really should be considering positioning. When we do the financial projections for strategic plans, we push management teams to be aspirational in them, and they are struggling to be aspirational. So I really do feel that it's going to be a tough 2023. Probably about half of the economists think we're going to go into a recession, Half will be, will just be in a slow slog on growth in 2023. Net interest margins are compressing, even though most banks were asset sensitive. So they should have actually benefited from rising rates, but their cost of funds is skyrocketing more than they anticipated. Uh, So I think it's going to be a challenge in 2023. And I think that the banks that will be well positioned for 2024 will make the strategic investments that will matter to their constituencies in 2023 to position them for their next leg of growth. I like to call that, in my book, I called it pulling into the pits. Every business needs to pull into the pits, right? There's no car on a NASCAR track that would think pulling in to get gas and changing your tires is a good thing because you might lose your position on the track, right? But they all have to do it. Otherwise, they'll blow a tire, they'll run out of gas. And one of the main reasons why banks sell Jack They run out of gas. They never pull into the pits. And if we're going to be in a challenging economic and and interest rate environment to make any sort of material profits for the benefit of our shareholders in 2023, I don't think if it matters if your ROA is 10 basis points less because you made these three strategic investments to position yourself for growth. I think the banks that are going to win in 2024 will do that.
0: And this is the kind of information that you can get every month from Jeff's podcast, the TDK, TDG podcast. You started it in 2016, uh, and you've done quite well with that, Jeff. Talk about the podcast a little bit, how people can get it, and what are some of the subjects that you're going to tackle going forward?
1: Yeah, This Month in Banking, our host is Sharon Lorman. She's great. And and I'll tell you, I we started by actually getting her liquored up. We would actually have her throw back a throw back a a shot of whiskey or something like that uh, uh, beforehand. She's the kind of person that actually drinks white wine with, with, with ice. But, but, but we started it in 2016. We didn't know what we were doing. I'm not even saying that we're great at what we're doing now, but we like, we don't schedule out Jack. um, Like people have these production calendars and, and schedule uh, out guests 12 months in advance because we like to see how things are ha- are happening, right, to to determine. So that kind of makes Sharon a little bit nervous because we're sometimes three weeks ahead of the podcast. We're saying, well, this is really happening. We should have this. We just enlisted Amber, like, last week for this month's uh, thing because it's like, hey, you know what? This branding thing, we got to get on top of this uh, to see what's what. And uh, it's it's been a great run. We get a lot of recognition from people we would not have otherwise met sales and banking for, you know, a B2B business like ours is generally done by handshakes and relationships, but that's evolving, Jack, you know, you're doing, you're specializing in helping uh, financial institutions with LinkedIn. And there are many, many more touches before you get to the handshake or the phone call or the video call. And this month in banking is one way that we do it. We try to keep our content, interesting to what might be of interest to that community banker, because that's where our target audience is.
0: And and you talked about the pit crew, uh, and going into the pits. The pit crew is your company, Jeff. Banks really need people like you to uh, think about strategies, and marketing, and pricing, and all those kinds of things. So if they wanted to get a hold of you and work with the Kafafian Group, how
1: would they do that? Yeah, so our website, kafafiangroup.com, K-A-F-A-F-I-A-N. Good Armenian name uh, is Bob Kafafian. So (laughs) kafafiangroup.com, our whole team is listed there. You could also, anywhere you get your podcasts to listen to our This Month in Banking podcast, you know, on app, on iTunes, or wherever you... Podcast app you use, you can find it. Uh, my blog is Jeff for Banks, the number four, uh JeffForbanks.com. And I reblog that on LinkedIn. So please feel free to LinkedIn connect to me. Although I am working on all of those things that people do wrong on LinkedIn that you gave in our last podcast. So <laughs> and I'm noticing that, Jeff, on your profile. You're doing better. Keep it up. I'm trying,
0: Jack. I'm trying. <laughs> but
1: as Yoda said, there is no try. There's only do or don't do.
0: Yeah, no, that's really true. And and you know it's interesting. The book was written in 2021. And while the, you know, the pandemic hit and things have changed a lot. There is so much good stuff in Squared Away. Uh, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, and certainly if you reach out to Jeff, he'll probably uh, you know, shoot you copies, probably got a few copies uh, hanging around. Uh Jeff, thank you so much for your insights and 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 sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Good to see Jack, you.
1: Jack, I appreciate it. Love knowing you, man.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers with my great guest, Jeff Marcico. This and every program is brought to you by our friends at RelPro and Vertical IQ. Join us next time for more special guests bringing you marketing ideas, sales, and leadership insights, along with other ideas that will provide your bank or credit union that competitive edge you need to succeed. This LinkedIn Live show. It's also a podcast. So subscribe to get the latest episodes of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers and leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and others. Visit our website, themodernbanker.com, for more information. And don't forget to sign up for that free public library at themodernbanker.com slash public library. And in this episode, and at every episode, I wish you that you make today and every day a great client day.